Hello and welcome to the ACA Adult Children Voices Across America Speakers Meeting. If you would like to attend this meeting live, go to adultchildren.org and click on online meetings and then scroll down to find Thursday at 6 p.m. Pacific time. Our speaker tonight is Jay from Miami, Florida. Okay, uh, thank you for allowing me to share uh, version 59.7. Anyway, uh, how y'all doing? Uh, my name is Jay and I'm, uh, I'm an adult child. I wanted to share my experience from the, uh, from the uh, black sheep perspective. <clears throat> uh, but I don't want to take too long on how it was. So I'm kind of, I'm going to go pretty big, pretty big fast. I'd rather kind of uh, talk about the solution. So hopefully I'll paint a picture of how it was. Uh, both my parents were emotionally self-absorbed and emotionally absent. Their pain, their wounds, and their dysfunction was passed down. I was a fourth child. I had three older sisters, two younger brothers, and I was far back as I could remember, my mom, my grandmother, and all the women told me that I was the man of the house. By the time I was six, I had seen a lot of violence uh, in Medellin, Colombia, where I grew up. I had seen a guy slashed up by a machete fight. I remember seeing bone. I saw a guy get swung by his arms and legs and thrown against a moving bus, then get stabbed repeatedly. I thought they were tickling the guy. And I saw a guy with a bullet in his head. I just remember this little river of blood. You know, it, sometimes it's like a dream. I dissociated. Uh, my dad took me to the bars and to the soccer games uh, where he played. I guess I've always been afraid of authority figures. And a lot of, lot of just, just about everybody was an authority figure for me growing up. When I was seven, both my parents immigrated to Jersey City, New Jersey, and left us kids with uh, my grandmother. I became isolated. I don't remember anything about being seven or eight, very little. When I was nine, the family was reunited in uh, New Jersey. <clears throat> I was called a honky, a spick, a cracker, and a Puerto Rican grease ball. And I was constantly getting jumped by both black kids and white kids. I was too white for one group and not white enough for the other group. This was 1969, 1970, At home, I didn't have anybody to talk to and I didn't know where I fit in. My three sisters formed a group and my two brothers who preferred to jump rope and play with the neighborhood girls made the other group. I'm like the lone kid out. Between both my parents, there were four jobs and a college degree. Weekends, they partied. And I became isolated again until I learned enough English. And I found a band of brothers in my neighborhood. I found belonging. I found a family that I could call my own. I was a paper boy. I bagged groceries, washed cars, mowed lawns, shoveled snow. I made money any way I could. I've always, I'm always be grateful for my block. When I was 14, my father, in one of our few conversations, called me over and said, come here, son. And he, what he told me was that if I masturbated, I would flip and I would not be a man. 
He said, man controlled their impulses. I was very naive, so I kind of went in one ear and went the other. But then Farrah Fawcett and Charlie's Angel were on TV, and uh, my uncle collected Playboy and Penthouse magazines. Uh, the toxic shame, high school pressure, not being to handle acid and marijuana, sent me into isolation again. There was no one at home I could talk to. When I started drinking at 15, I found the fake courage to fight back and to begin my journey as a black sheep, as a false self who was constantly in trouble. At 17, my, my family moved down to Miami. I cheated on my GED and I joined the US Air Force. During boot camp, however, I got discharged for fighting. Looking back, I didn't know how to integrate with my fellow soldiers. Looking back, I had issues with criticism, authority, identity, low self-esteem. I reacted. I was harsh on myself. All laundry traits. When I got back to Miami, after I got kicked out of the Air Force, my father, who hadn't talked to me in years, embraced me and introduced me to some of his friends who gave me a machine gun and put me on a plane with the next Vietnam pilot who smuggled 300 kilos of cocaine. For four years, I stayed drunk. I stayed high on cocaine. I became addicted to excitement, to women, to guns, to money, to fear, to adrenaline, to motorcycles, to gambling my life, to adopting most of the other laundry list traits, to compensate my feelings of worthlessness. In 1983, at 21 years of age, I got arrested for smuggling 268 kilos of cocaine. The judge gave me the maximum sentence allowed by law. I was sent to maximum security penitentiary as Leavenworth, where I was the youngest and only first time nonviolent offender. I found belonging. I found a band of brothers. We fought together, we protected each other. For the second time in my life, I had found a family of my own. My false self, the black sheep, would stop all feelings and numb every emotion in order to survive. I will always be grateful for my brothers at Leavenworth. In 1994, at 33 years of age, I was released from prison and deported back to Colombia. Pablo Escobar had just been killed, and Medellin was a war zone. My homies would embrace me and would take me back into the toxic world that I had known. When one of my girlfriends got pregnant, my higher power, the universe, source, divine light, whatever, gave me choices, gave me two choices, gave me life or death, prison or parenting. And I abandoned the toxic world of cocaine. At 34 years of age, my first ever relationship, the first woman I would ever sleep with for longer than a night or two. She was, is a compulsive personality, a drama queen, and I became codependent. I was terrified of abandonment and terrified of losing my kids. I did my best to help raise our daughter and nine years later, a son. In 2009, in my late 40s, I abandoned my family 
and went to Spain, to Madrid, to reclaim my lost youth. The drugs, the money, the women, the excitement, and the adrenaline denied me. In two years, life had taken me to toxic shame. And I would go up to the cliff on my motorcycle with a loaded gun. The reason I didn't do myself in, I think, is because I got curious about who I was. I had no clue who I was whatsoever. I had zero identity that I could call my own. In just weeks, on my 50th birthday in June of 2011, by accident, by divine intervention, I found ACA in Madrid, Spain, of all places. A Texan, a Canadian, a couple of Brits, a couple of uh, English-speaking Spaniards were doing a big Red Bull. Uh, they were executive types, professionals, and I had long hair, leather jacket, braided goatee. I had my biker mask on. I was certain during the first meeting that I wasn't going to stay in ACA. After the meeting, however, a group got together with more men and women from other groups. They expressed feelings and emotions through dance and music to get in touch with their inner children, a concept I thought was crazy, mumbo-jumbo, pop psychology. Uh, they arrived from work and would, uh, would dance like hippies to get in touch with this uh, inner child. And uh, for some reason, I decided to stay in ACA. Uh, yeah, I guess I was lucky uh, because of this dancing and this kind of, uh, of getting in touch with the emotions through movement, not with my brain. Uh, I was able to find my inner child early on. Uh, I was at a crowded McDonald's and I was, I was thinking, what traumatic event could have sent an inner child into hiding? It, it's crazy. You know, I thought I was Teflon coated. I thought I was tough as nails. And, uh, you know, there's no trauma in my life. There's, there's, there's no suffering. Everything I did just made me strong. But I was in this McDonald's and, and my mind just took me to this place. Uh, I was going to the Air Force at 17. And I remember that there were like 100 recruits, women, boys, girls, all crying. And I, what I remember is taking my cigarette and flicking and going, what a bunch of sissy going to war and crying like babies. I didn't say it in no nice words though. And like 32 years later on that day at the McDonald's, I remember, you know, every recruit had a mother, a dad, a grandmother, an uncle, an aunt, brother, sister, dogs, cats. I was the only person going to the Air Force at 17. I wanted to prove to my family that I was a man. I wanted to prove that I could do it. And nobody went to see me off on the day I went to serve my country. Not a single person. Abandonment, neglect, indifference. I had no idea that that could hurt so much in here. I had no clue. So I, I kind of stayed, I stayed in the program uh, and when I saw that image, the, the, the way I saw the inner child is, is, you know, it's like this little kid looking at me and I'm like, who the hell are you? And he kind of looks up at me all scared and he says, uh, you know, you put me here. 
I'm like, oh shoot, I did put you in there, didn't I? And the the image was so real. It came from a different part of my brain. It had different feelings. It just it just felt like I mean, what the hell is this? I had no clue. And I think that's the only reason I stayed in ACA. I don't think I know. It's the only reason I stayed in ACA. I went back to uh, Panama to be with my kids. And I started doing the 12 steps. I started doing AA, NA, CODA, uh, and all these other pro any any kind of a anonymous program. And I did steps one, two, and three, easy peasy. Right? I mean, I grew up Catholic. And then step four and five, I mean, I could talk a lot of crap. I could run my mouth. And to me, that was a step four and five. Six and seven were easy. Uh, had very little laments because, you know, there's nobody around. And I thought I was in step 12. I mean, I was, you know, gung-ho. I mean, I got this. But I go, I go to a meeting, and when I came back, when I went home, the same void, the same emptiness, and I couldn't figure out what was wrong. The little boy, the little inner child, uh, he must have flipped a finger at me because I wouldn't see him again. He just said, screw you, man. I ain't going out there. It's too crazy. So uh, about uh, in year five, doing the programs, I did the unthinkable. My divorce had come through. Uh, the ex-wife was still in my house. She had a bunch of cars. She had a couple of motorcycles, and she wouldn't leave the house. So a corrupt police captain in Panama and, uh, and uh, a, a corrupt government official uh, told me uh, that I wasn't going to win. That, that as a man, Panama is not going to, you know, give me my house. So they kind of made up this plan to uh, get her out of the house, and I agreed. I had some weapons, some guns in the house, and I dropped a dime on her. About 30 goon squad Panamanian officials went over there and got the guns, <laughs> and it backfired on me, because the next day they got me and they put me in prison. So I'm in this Panamanian prison, and you know, for some reason, I had one of those uh, psychic changes that Bill talks about because I knew I had done wrong. I knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that I belonged to be in there because I had done wrong. Uh, I was able to get out. Uh, the lawyer, you know, did what he had to do. I was out. And, uh, and my ex-wife left the house. I had called Columbia, I had called my people. I said, look, this woman put me in prison. That's it, no more fair games. I'm, I'm through playing, I'm through being a nice guy. And she left the house. But I felt horrible inside. I felt horrible. I knew I had really messed up. Uh, I lose a girlfriend and I'm back to isolation. And I'm back to being terrified of abandonment. So I go out to the street and I start looking for women and I start my old life again. And next thing I know, I'm in toxic shame again. But this time I didn't put a gun to my head. I went inside and I said, I went, who, who, why toxic shame? Who, is that you little kid? Is that you sending me into toxic shame? And I had the second vision of my inner child, five years after the first time. And he looks at me and he's getting ready to dash back inside. 
And it's as if I run behind him through this synapses in the brain and I kind of cornered him and I said, is that you shaming me? What's going on? And he kind of looks up at me and he says, yeah, because you don't have any breaks in life. Shame is the only thing you listen to. And I started crying, man. I, I said, oh, man, I'm so glad to see you, kid. Listen, I got so much to tell you, man. I miss so much. You miss so much. And I just, I embraced this little kid with all my heart, man. It was like the most loving experience I could ever, I can't explain it. It's just a feeling. It's just an event. And the little kid would not go hiding again. And my, you know, and I started this relationship with my inner child. And, uh, you know, I think one day I said, what's next? And he said, you got to make amends to your ex-wife, to your kid. And uh, I said, yeah, I know, I know. So I had three properties and the house and I took the keys and I went to my ex-wife and I said, here, take these houses. I'm gonna blow them on my next girlfriend. You know, Marco needs to go to school, needs to go to college. My boy was about 11. And uh, I made real amends and uh, I understood uh, with this relationship with the inner child, I understood steps four and five. It was no longer about talking crap in the rooms. It was no longer about, look at me, I'm Teflon coded. I survived this and I did this. And I started sharing honestly. I started sharing, you know, to, to, to service, to try to help somebody. And it took me five years to, to, to get a glimpse of what honesty was. I didn't know. And, uh, I think about, you know, I started listening to my kid. I started listening to my daughter. I started, you know, it was like I became a different person. This inner child was teaching me a lot of humanity that I had lost. I could be compassionate. I could be caring. And, and life started changing. So in 2016, uh, my daughter was in uh, Tallahassee. She, she, was, she was graduating from college. And uh, I started Googling to see if I could get her a status in the U.S. And uh, <clears throat> doing my research, I, you know, I'm reading this and it's like, wait a minute, I'm a U.S. citizen. According to this, I'm a U.S. citizen. They should have never deported me back to Colombia. So I get my proof, I get my parents' uh, citizenship, and I go to the U.S. Embassy. I take the proof, I said, look, According to this, I'm a U.S. citizen. And they said, yeah, you are a citizen here. They gave me a passport and uh, they also gave me a letter. They said that I was wanted in the U.S. for 268 kilos of cocaine. And I said, that's crazy. I already paid for that. I was already incarcerated and I was released. As I left the, as I left the uh, U.S. Embassy, Panamanian immigration locks me up. They put me in the prison and like that, I'm prison again. And, uh, you know, there's, there's, there was uh, like 12 or 13, a whole bunch of uh, Pakistani. And they were complaining about uh, not getting food. And they started banging the door, talking about they were, they were going to torch up a gringo. And I'm like, they're going to torch up a gringo? What the hell is this? I'm the only gringo in there. I'm the only one with the U.S. passport. And, and I sort of, I, I kind of come out. A full Colombian, right? I came out aggressive. I come out, uh, you know, 
just just trying to get with people, you know, who's got this, who's got a telephone. I remember a guy telling me, hey man, everybody who comes in here hides. And you come out here and you're like, you run the place. And I said, bro, listen, I'm scared to death. It's just me on survival. These guys want to torch up, torch up somebody and I, I'm scared to death. Anyway, uh, I, was able, I, I was able to pay the Panamanians to get me back to the U.S. I came back to the U.S. and of course they locked me up at the federal institution. I wait a month and uh, to my PC hearing, probable cause hearing, I don't see a judge because I'm technically I'm still BOP property. And they told me I had left the district of supervision without permission. And I said, uh, how the F do I leave the district of supervision when immigration cuffs me, takes me to the airport and deports me to Columbia? And my, the parole officer or the parole hearing officer said, well, I'm sorry, you know, you should have asked for permission. You should have found a way. I'm like, anyway, long story short, uh, <clears throat> I'm in the prison. I'm feeling six foot eight. I'm LeBron James. I'm uh, playing handball. I'm beating all these young guys. I'm main tier orderly. Everybody gets out when I say, because I got to buck the floor. And I'm the recreation orderly. I got all the candy for the, for the block to give out to the guys, so they gotta come to me. And I'm thriving, I'm feeling like this, you know, wow, I'm gonna come out to Miami, I'm gonna, I'm gonna run this place. Uh, in the fourth month, they offered me eight months if I plead guilty. And uh, I told my lawyer to go tell them to screw themselves. I was not gonna plead guilty to something I hadn't done. And uh, I had already done the research. Uh, they, they, they uh, you know, they couldn't prove intent. So I was released two days later, and uh, I came out to Miami, hadn't been here in 25 years, uh, and I found AA, I found ACA, I found CODA, and I found all these programs in the clubhouse. Uh, they were doing yoga, they were doing 12-step uh, meditation. So one day, I leave yoga, I go to the beach to meditate, and... Uh, you know, I'm feeling five foot eight again. Afraid of people, afraid of authority figures. My feelings of worthlessness come back. I'm five eleven, but I'm feeling five foot eight. So I'm meditating and I'm like talking to my. I'm trying to call my inner child and I'm saying, "Hey, Papito, I didn't know you had that in you. And you know what? I really appreciate what you did in there, and I'm, I'm really proud of you." So I kind of doze off in that meditation and uh, <laughs> I wake up startled like, what the hell? Uh, I had another image, uh, a teenager, like my teenager, had my inner child by the neck and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to put words into the image that I saw. So, so bear with me, this is, you know, it's the best way I could do it. And he was just beating the crap. And he said, if you snitch on me, I'll beat the crap out of you, you little mother effer. And I'm like, what, what, what is this? So I walk in there and I ask, who the hell are you? And it's like this other kid just looks at me. And <laughs> it kind of dusts off the inner child. 
And right away, I go home and I start Googling Jekyll and Hyde, multiple in the children, uh, you know, multiple personalities. And I tried to describe the image that I saw as best I could. And uh, one, thing I, one thing I like about ACA is that it has an open literature policy. In this fellowship, we're not stingy with information. We are allowed to go outside to better ourselves. And through Googling, I found this article in uh, Psychology Today that talks about the inner child, talks about the outer child, talks about the, the uh, you know, the authentic self, the false self, the mass self. And it's like, wow, this makes total sense. I mean, this is, this is what I feel. You know, there's an authentic part of me and there's this false part of me, this black sheep. And it's like everything clicked, you know, everything clicked. Yeah. Even ACA clicked because now I understood that, uh, you know, that I do, I have this, you know. So I started working both of these inner children and, uh, you know, I start understanding, everything starts clicking, everything from the back starts clicking. Uh, the way I work it is, uh, my inner child and my false self never saw eye to eye. One's about emotion, one's about survival. And they're kind of back to back. So I kind of said, look, listen here guys, uh, you guys are gonna camp out in step six and seven, you're going to face each other and you're going to talk this out and you're going to figure out who we are. You're going to figure out who we are authentically because we don't know. Me, I'm the loving parent, right? I'm going to hang out in step 11 and I'm going to observe and I'm going to meditate and I want to be the fair witness, but I'm the boss, all right? So, Metaphorically speaking, I kind of, I, I'm still camping out three years later because my inner child and my false self will still, you know, they still have a lot of work to do. But it's getting a lot better, you know, it's getting way better. Uh, then in the pandemic hit, when the pandemic hit, you know, there you go, isolation again, right? But by that time, I was feeling pretty good. I was, I was, you know, I was doing the work, I was finding out more about who I was, sort of like reinventing myself. I, I was doing a lot of work in the fellowships. I'm, uh, you know, I went to meetings. I tried to share as honestly as I could doing service. Sometimes my mouth goes off, I, I get it. And sometimes, you know, it's just, it, it's hard to, it's hard to want to squeeze validation out of the group. Because that's why I talk so much in the group. I really want y'all to like me. I want that validation and I want to hide all these fears and all these feelings of worthlessness that I got, all these laundry list traits that I got, right? So, uh, but I'm getting better, you know? I really, really try to, 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 you know, make connect with somebody so that my experience, uh, the way I do this program might help somebody. Anyway, when the pandemic hit, uh, I looked into the isolation a little bit more and I found SLA. I had done that SAA 
what I found, Sla, and they were talking about anorexia. I'm like, anorexia? What the hell is anorexia? Is that when people don't eat? So uh, the program uh, kind of, I started reading about the emotional, social, and sexual anorexia. I don't know how to connect to people. I don't know how to form intimate relationship with normal people. I don't know how to connect emotionally with my kids. My father never connected to me, and I didn't know how to connect to him. Well, now I had a program that has tools, and people that have gone through the same anorexia and have used the 12 steps to try to connect to their kids, to their brothers, to their sisters. And that's what I've been doing since the pandemic. Once in the program, uh, a guy started talking about the enmeshment uh, with the mother. And they talked about how this uh, enmeshment, uh, my mother made me the man of the house. She should never have made me the man of the house. I'm five, six years old. It wasn't my job to, to, to be the man of the house. It was a burden. And I could, all I could do was try my best. My whole life, I tried to reach up to different levels of manhood. I had no idea why. All I knew was I had to do it. So I found out through the program, this guy talking about enmeshment. And uh, I understood why it was so hard for me to, to relate to beautiful, well-prepared, educated women. In a way, I was competing with my mother. I felt shame. I felt guilt. I felt as if I was being disloyal, unfaithful. And I recognized the feeling only when I heard somebody else in the groups talk about it. And I said, wow, man, this really sounds like me, doesn't it? And I started working on getting detached, detaching with love. I hadn't seen my mother in 30 some years, so it's not like, you know, I was still enmeshed, but, but the original enmeshment stayed with me my whole life. <clears throat> After I kind of sorted that out, uh, I kept coming to the, uh, uh, to the SLA, and, uh, oh, geez, what was it, no, something else. Uh, give me a second here, my note. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, yeah. Uh, so I was still having problems with identity, right? The last big secret, the last big shadow, right? The one thing I would never dare to tell another man. And that was that during my life and during my identity, identity uh, crises or whatever, I had had sexual insecurities. A lot of times, you know, I didn't know who I was sexually. And for me to tell that to another man was like death. How could I? That was the biggest secret I was going to take to the grave because it was, it was just so, so against the masks and the armor that I've always worn. So I said, I told myself and I told my sponsor, I said, look, I'm going to go, I'm going to look into this. I'm going to look deep into this and I'm going to accept whatever's inside and I'm not going to fight it, you know, because I need to be authentic. So they put me in touch with this uh, a sex and trauma therapist. And uh, 
you know, uh, the, I guess the perfect combination because I started doing this EMDR thing and with the guys, and he kind of took me to this, uh, to, to, he kind of took me to that, to my past. And, you know, I kind of understood, uh, I, I understood that there was a lot of guilt in my life that I mistook for shame. Shame is there's something wrong with me. Guilt is I did something wrong that I need to make amends for. And I won't get into that because it's a long story, but I finally understood. I guess what I understood uh, through the EMDR finally was the how, the when, the where, the why. And I connected every single dot to my last, to my life, to my past. And it's like now I could see exactly why I get triggered. I understand why my inner child is so needy. I understand why my false self, my black sheep, just doesn't care about anything. He just wants to survive. He, 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 he doesn't understand anything. Uh, logic, ration, he just wants to feel good. And it's because there is a lot of trauma. There is a lot of pain. I finally learned to, uh, you know, I finally learned to deal with and I finally learned uh, uh, how to detach from it with a lot of love and gentleness, you know. Uh, there's a part in the laundry book, and I'll finish with this because I don't want to take up uh, too much time. Uh, they talk about content. This is from the laundry list uh, workbook. They talk about content without connection to the subconscious is awareness and it's 100% stressful. Content without connection to the inner child or the false self is awareness and it's 100% stressful. I always knew that I was broken. I always knew that I was defective but I couldn't do anything about it. The content, what happens out here with connection to the subconscious, connection to the inner child, to my false self, is consciousness. And it's zero stress. And it's when I understand the why, the how, the when. It's when I have grieved all my losses, all my traumas. And it's when I've been able to get away from the past and be grounded in the present. My higher power is the present. My higher power is the here and now. My higher power is when I'm balanced. When I'm balanced in body, mind, and spirit. Which for me is the same thing as loving parent, in the child, spirit, the only connection to the higher power. The sun, the false self. And what's funny about this is that almost everything I read about recovery, almost everything I read about, you know, self-help kind of leads me to ACA. And I am able to connect these metaphorical constructs into just about everything I read. Uh, I'm a blessed man. I think I'm the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Uh, I've been able to kind of see to my primal brain 
I'm able to meditate and see these images. I'm a blessed man because I have a daughter who graduated as a chemical engineer. Uh, she just bought a house. She's 25. She's a good kid. My daughter's a good kid. I feel, you know, she's a, she's a good person. She's got good friends. And I'm a blessed man because a lot of my dysfunction were we passed down under her. I'm a blessed man because I have this program. This program has taught me how to live. It has taught me how to find myself. I came into this program hoping to feel a little bit better. I stayed in this program because there was a bunch of women dancing like hippies to try to connect to the sinner child. And I changed. This program has changed me. I didn't change myself. This program has changed me. And, uh, you know, I really appreciate uh, you guys allowing me to speak here. And I really uh, hope that somehow uh, my message might be able to help somebody. Uh, I've been trying to get into the prison systems, uh, maybe uh, juvenile detention centers. We, we try to take the message. We try to take ACA, but uh, I haven't had any luck. Uh, deep down inside, I know. I know in my heart that I could reach a lot of these kids, man. There's a lot of there's a lot of kids that need help, and I think I could reach them. And I, you know what? The last thing I want to say is is. The reason I'm blessed, uh, you know, I found a tribe in the neighborhood when I was a little kid. And I found a tribe in the penitentiary, one of the worst places on earth. And I found brothers. I found humanity. There's humanity in these institutions. There may not be much. I guarantee you that there's not much, but there's enough humanity to save a couple. I would have never survived if it weren't for a lot of these lifers who took me under their wing and said, man, listen up, you better stay straight because you're getting out of here. And we're going to make sure you get out of here. You're not going to mess up in here. And I'm blessed and I'm lucky because I had enough integrity in me for these guys to, to not prey on me, for these guys to, to really take care of me. Last week, I took a trip. And uh, I <laughs> last Friday, I drove from Tallahassee, and I went through Alabama, Mississippi, Arkansas, Missouri, Kansas. I went to the penitentiary at Leavenworth just to say goodbye to these, to, to, to my, you know, to, to my brothers, and to metaphorically release my false self from that prison. I think he was still in there. And I had the freedom. This pandemic has been the best thing in my life. In nine months or 11 months of pandemic, I had done more for me with these steps than I had the nine previous years. I faced my shadow. I faced my biggest, biggest fear. And I saw the exact nature of who I was or who I am. And, uh, I, I can't be any more. I can't be any happier. Anyway, that's about enough out of me. If you guys leave me here, I'll, I'll keep going to today. So uh, I hope uh, at least one of you guys uh, 
gets the message and uh, stays. Stays. Thank you.